Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on August 26, 2012. Today's message is titled, The Gentle and the Hard Sides of Discipleship by Dr. Bob Roxburgh. The message is based on scripture reading from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 28, and Luke chapter 9, verses 53 to 62. The church is in very difficult times. There is not one answer. There are several important themes that are developed and spoken about. That is not what I'm here to talk about today. There are topics such as the kingdom, the nature of the church, missional stuff, how we relate to the culture. All of those are there. And they're all meant to say, how do we deal with the problem that exists in the church today. As one who loves the church deeply, I need to say there are deep problems in most churches in this culture in which we now live. And so I I say all of that to get to the biggest point. One of, remember there's never one answer, but one of the most important answers to the malaise of the church to what's going on in the culture is that we understand the nature of discipleship. And I'm going to talk about that today and next time. Martin Robinson, a well-known English historian, a friend of mine, uh, went to a conference not too long ago of great Christian leaders. I wasn't there. It was for great Christian leaders. And um, they discussed, what do we really need to do? And part of, way at the top of the list, was this issue of discipleship. Discipleship, what does that mean? Well, I hope I can unfold it a bit, but whatever it means, in simplest terms, it's how to be a follower of Jesus. We need to unwrap that. Now, I know there are zillions of books, zillions of sermons, conferences galore on discipleship that have taken place over the last 50 years of my ministry anyway. So what can I add? Well, all I can add is what I'm going to add. And that is to say, as you listen in to Jesus talking to his disciples, you pick up clues. We'll pick them up today when I talk about the gentle and the hard side of discipleship out of the words that Jesus said. Not what some theologian says, or some conference says, or some video series says. Not that they are not centered on Jesus. But just the very words of Jesus. And next week, I'll present the five occasions in which Jesus specifically used the word. Today it's, of course, inferred. You'll catch that. But next week, it's not even inferred. This is what a disciple is, says Jesus. And we'll summarize that in a sentence that I hope you can take away with you. There are notes for today. Just hold on to them. If you can bear it, look at my face when I preach. And when you go home, say, oh, that's what he was talking about. So there the notes are there for you to do. I want to talk about the gentle aspect coming out of Matthew chapter 11. And I want to talk about the hard aspect 
coming out of Luke chapter 9. It was important for Jesus to speak in gentle terms about discipleship. In his day, given the Pharisees and all that was going on in the religion then, people felt there was a burden. It was a life of rules. You know, you couldn't walk across the room to put on a light because that was working on the Sabbath. Whatever it was, they felt burdened, and he addresses that issue with gentle, warm tones. That may be so today, as people react about what's gone on in the church with all of its do's and don'ts and rules and regulations, debating things that most of the world wonder, why do they talk about that stuff? Why do they use Robert's Rules of Orders when there's only a handful of them in a meeting and they have to do all, everything precise? Why can't they just get around and talk as people? You know, what we do leaves people say, what is that institution about? And so if we're going to present our faith, our wonderful faith, if we're going to give the church hope, a church that I love deeply, but that Jesus died for, we're going to have to present a gentler side. Now, almost in total contradiction to what I've just said, if we leave it there, it won't work. Because we need to look at a culture in which everything seems to happen by emotions and feelings. And Jesus comes along and says, "Uh uh-uh. There is a tough side for it. There is an intentional side to it. So that's where we go. Let's start with the gentle side. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. I'll keep mentioning the verses, but if you want to follow, there we are. Verse 28, Jesus said, Come unto me. And so in that gentleness, he's calling us to a relationship. And I listened this morning to the songs, and they were all about that. You know, I often like to quote hymns and songs and a bit of Shakespeare. That's the old-fashioned part of me. I've got modern parts too, like I never wear a tie. However, whatever, um, the whole issue is that the songs this morning left me free from making lots of quotes. I'll make some, because every one of them seemed to speak about this. That to be a Christian is to be called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I have another son, not just Cameron, but I have a son, Graham, as well as a daughter. But my son, Graham, heads up soccer in Canada for Athletes in Action, Campus Crusade, whatever. And he was on sabbatical for two or three months in England with his family, whilst uh, Brenda and I, I had to go for some ministry in England, and, and we stayed around and met up with Graham and so forth. So we all ended up at Chichester Cathedral. Uh, It doesn't matter whether that's important to you or not. But there I was reminded of the well-known, at least in England, Saint, uh, Saint Richard from Chichester, who talked about this relationship to Jesus in terms of, I want to know him more clearly. I want to follow him more nearly. And I want to love him more dearly. For Christianity, how I discovered it, as an urchin lad from Liverpool, living around the corner from the Beatles, I discovered that it's a passionate attachment to a relationship to a person. Like, I wasn't won by some doctrine. I wasn't won by saying, well, this church has got a program. I wasn't won by any building. 
somehow I was won by people who were just in love with Jesus. And as in any relationship, it ought to be a passionate attachment of the mind and of the soul and of the body. You all know about John Newton, the slave trader who became a Christian, a pastor, a minister, whatever. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, and everybody knows that song. He wrote about ten other hymns, too, by the way. One of them is, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds in a Believer's Ear. And then one of the verses says, Jesus, my Savior, shepherd, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. You just knew that this slave trader who had had this dramatic encounter with Jesus, so he writes Amazing Grace, was someone to whom the very word Jesus had this warm, emotive sense of belonging. It wasn't about going to church. It wasn't about preaching sermons. It wasn't about getting the right doctrine right. It wasn't about challenging somebody in a membership meeting about fine points of the Constitution. The world thinks we're crackers when we do that kind of stuff. It was about being in love with Jesus. So that's the first call, the gentle call. The second one is still in verse 28. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, heavy laden with the religion and the culture and all the things with the Roman oppression that were going on. And I can make all kinds of parallels today. But if in the bottom line, that's all that matters. If you're weary, if you're burdened, if you feel life's a drag, Jesus said, you're a prime candidate for coming to me. I want to call ordinary people. He doesn't call supermen and superwomen per se. He doesn't say you have to have type A personalities. You can just be little old you. There's a story told, how true it is or not, but it's a bit of fun, of a man who was looking for the perfect church. So he tried the Presbyterians, they were too dry. He tried the Baptists, they were too wet. He, you know, he tried all kinds of them. Uh, and one day he was recommended to an Anglican church, but he rushed in a bit late. I don't know what happened, but he got there late. Now, if you don't know the Anglican service, maybe this is going to go over your head, but I'll try to familiarize it. They have colics and creeds and litanies and the calls like the Nunc Dimittis and the Magnificat and the Te Deum Laudamus. They just repeat them all out. But they also have something called the General Confession. Now, if you listen to the General Confession, it's very beautiful if you go to a sort of dead Anglican church. There are lots of live ones in Britain, but there are some dead ones. If you go to a dead one, they just say it like wrote and you go, what's all that about? But it goes like this. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and the desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy law. We have done those things we ought not to have done and have left undone those things which we ought to have done. There is no health in us. Well, he got in just as they were saying all that. He said, thank God, my kind of people at last. You see, the call is to ordinary people. There's a passage of scripture I'm going to turn to. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Sometimes I choke up on this. The reason I choke up on this, somehow in this mini-series, you'll learn a bit about my background. I did not come with a silver spoon in my mouth. I did not come in some kind of great church background. It was all the opposite of that. So this passage chokes me up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and beginning at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. That's who God chose. On the front of your bulletin, you quote Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, 11. And prior to that, the Apostle Paul says, If I had reasons to boast, look it, I was this, that, and the other, but I discovered, compared with knowing Christ, they're nothing. And the people whom God calls are just ordinary people who make up his church. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency will be of God and not of us. So it's a call to him, to a passionate attachment, to, to we ordinary folks. And again on verse 28, it's a call to a balanced life. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Oh, that sounds good. Sounds like Alice in Wonderland. You know the white rabbit? I'm late, I'm late for a very important date. Can't stop to say, hello, goodbye, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. It sounds like the average person or mom and dad getting ready for the kids that's going to school. It just sounds like most of us. And Jesus offered us rest. And we go, whoopee. A beach time in Hawaii. A hammock in the back garden. No, that's not what the word means. And rather than quoting the Greek and the Aramaic, let me just get to the bottom line. It's a big word. Are you ready for it? Some of you who work in social sciences will recognize it. The word is homeostasis. It's a psychological term. It means a balanced kind of life. A balance within our psyche. The people who go around shooting people and all the rest of it, there's something all messed up inside of them. But the way most of us live, unfortunately, um, there's a lot messed up inside of us. And Jesus says to ordinary people that if you come to him and walk in a relationship with him, your life will have that oops, homeostatic balance translated down to earth. We know that as Christians we'll go through rough times. Maybe all hell will be thrown at us. Maybe everything will be black. Maybe we will face things that we never dreamed of. Maybe the world is swirling around us or we've just lost our job or whatever. But when we come to him, he offers us this rest inside that gives us perspective on life. He talked, Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 4, and I've noted some of these verses in my notes. I'll leave it there. Let's come to verse 29. He not only calls us to himself, ordinary people, to 
live balanced lives because our perspective is this is about God's kingdom. It's not about keeping up with the Joneses. It's not about trying to be super people. It's not about crumbling when life crashes in on us. This is about understanding we belong to Jesus and his kingdom. So the call is, come unto me, all you who are weary and laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now, any of you have ever sung or listened to the Messiah know that that's a beautiful aria, you know, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Well, let's just do the first part. Take my yoke upon you. What was a yoke? It was, it was a harness that the oxen put on, or they have horses in our day, and now we have tractors and combines, but it's all the same idea. It's something in which you can pull something to make it lighter and easier and more effective. And the wonderful thing about that culture is, and it's so wonderful for us, that every harness was made to fit the particular ox. You couldn't go to Walmart and buy one. You had to get one made. And you know what? That's what I know about my relationship to Jesus. Whoever I am, I hear Jesus say, Bob Roxburgh, with all your bright spots and dark spots, with all the warts and with all your strengths and with all your weaknesses, I have a life that I want to fit for you. And that's true of everybody listening to my voice. Wesley said, the yoke was not a burden, it was like wings so that we could fly. I get choked up, especially when I'm driving through the mountains, the combination of driving through the mountains as I did yesterday to get here, listening to Josh Groban sing, uh, you, know, you lift me up so that I can become more than I can be. That's the gospel message. Yes, of course, it's about being saved. It's about eternal life. It's about being born again. But a huge part of the gospel message is he lifts you up that you can walk on mountains. He lifts you up that you can be what you were meant to be. You don't have to be what somebody else wants you to be. I have to go into a little story here. I was speaking this past week, went to dinner with a prominent English lawyer who also was born in Liverpool. This could be a long story. I have to keep it extremely brief. The, dramat the drama of that story as we had dinner was, I said, you were raised in the Liverpool area. Where did you go to school? Because he was sharp, I imagined he'd went, gone to grammar school. Grammar school is like the Harry Potter uh, series, the first one without the broomsticks flying around. That's called a grammar school back then. They were very proper places. And you learned at, at the 10 years of age, I was learning Latin, German, Greek, and so forth. You know, there was no time for fun. You just got educated. But anyway, I said, where'd you go to school? He said, the Liverpool Collegiate. I said, I went there too. He said, no, you didn't. I said, I did. Oh, I can't believe that, he said. I said, well, try this. We would hike so dolitas decus esmadunai, nulli asquam possibenda semper in kailam tolenda magnai virum kunai. I said, you want the second verse? 
He said, you did go to Liverpool Collegiate. And we shared. He'd gone ten years after I. We shared that there was one English teacher who was also a form teacher, a class teacher, called Richard Darton, who had been closed Plymouth Brethren. We didn't know that at the time. He and I were both kind of atheists. He and I both came from a dreadful parts of Liverpool. Makes East Vancouver look like West Vancouver. Terrible. And we talked about how Richard Darton had ministered to us to the place where soon after both of us, ten years apart, never knew each other, soon after both of us had graduated from grammar school, that we become converted to Jesus. And we both were aware that coming from the dregs of Liverpool, his folks lived in a trailer, at least I lived in a house. It wasn't much of a house, the toilet was somewhere down some back alley somewhere. But out of that kind of background, we met Jesus, and he lifted us up to become more than we ever would have become without him. That's the nature of the gospel. And then again in verse 29, he says, come and learn from me. The invitation was to learn from him, to enroll in his school, to go on a life journey of learning things. Well, we all know that. We do that in life anyway. We enroll in life in his school. And discipleship is a lifetime thing. It doesn't happen overnight, bit by bit. There used to be buttons that Christians wore. They don't do that anymore. It was corny then. It's corny now. It's like those what would Jesus do kind of things people were. I'm not in that space. That's where I'm a little more modern than I look. But anyway, um, the buttons used to have on them P-B-P-G-I-F-W-N, whatever. What it means is, please be patient. God is not yet finished with me. That's what all those letters meant. Please be patient. God is not yet finished with me. And that's the life of discipleship, in which we learn to be patient with one another. We don't hit each other on the head with a club because they step out of line. N.T. Wright, a famous theologian from England, from the, formerly of Durham Cathedral, has been to Regent to lecture many times. As an excellent book, I recommend it. It's called After You Believe. And most of it has to do with discipleship, whatever else it is, is learning how to develop Christian character. It's not just saying, well, I don't do this, I don't do that, and I do do that, and I do... It's learning character. And I put some of those things on the application part of the sheets for the sermon this morning. Take them home. I'm not going to refer to them now. And how are we to do this? The way it was done with Jesus in mentoring relationships. Why the church thinks it can just go on teaching classes about discipleship. People need to be mentored one-on-one, -on -one, or at least one-on-two or three. And the best example of this is to go to Robin Williams' and see his movie again, Dead Poets Society. If you've not seen it, rent it. Get Netflix, whatever works, and get a copy of Dead Poets Society. Because 
it's in that relationship. Well, while I'm on the business of suggesting movies, it's got nothing to do, and it's not a commercial. Ryan never paid me to say this, and my son didn't either, but I'm going to do it. Much talk about being missional. Yeah, it'll go over people's heads until maybe sit together in somebody's living room and watch the movie Chocolate. Who's ever seen the movie Chocolate? Watch it and say, why is it people don't go to church? Maybe they're telling me something about how you minister to people. So that's one movie. If you want to learn about discipleship in that it's the development of character, I'll deal more with that next week, then rent the movie The Emperor's Club with Kevin Klein. Who's seen The Emperor's Club? It is fantastic. Just Google it and get it and watch it and go, yeah, that's what Bob was talking about. To enroll in the school of Christ and learn what it is to develop Christian character. I'd better move on. We, the mind can only take in what the seat can endure, so I will go quicker. The other side of this is the hard side, the intentional side. And that's where we have to now jump to Luke chapter 9, verses 53 to 62. Three times Jesus defines a disciple in terms of saying, uh-uh, you can't do that. Uh-uh, that's not the way it is. Uh-uh, that's not where we're going. And we'll, well, that story was read to us. We'll unfold it a little more. Jesus was going against the culture again. And I don't know how you can live as a Christian anymore without understanding that we are in a different culture. We live in the culture. You can't get out of it, and you need to be involved in it. So don't hear me wanting you to run away into some little nice Christian retreat. But we have to realize that the culture that shapes us is the kingdom of God. And Jesus had to work on that in this story here. Verses 57, 58, somebody says, Lord, how full are you wherever? And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. Being a Christian is not based on an emotional experience alone. A little boy sees the soldiers marching. Go to England, you see that all the time, and the bands are playing, and they're all dressed up, looking great, and all the rest of it. And the little boy says, oh, I'd like to be a soldier. And Dad says, well, you know what soldiers do? Explain that they get killed in battle. Oh, no, I've changed my mind. And that's what Jesus was doing when he said, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but if you follow me, I, I don't make those guarantees. You cannot follow me by emotion. Now, I know I'm not talking to a ton of young people, but I've seen too much pain to miss this comment. You cannot get married just by emotion either. Love is blind and marriage is an eye-opener. And the reason the divorce rate is as high as it is and it's the same rate among evangelicals as it is in the world is because we've allowed the culture to tell us that it's all about how I feel. I was at a restaurant in Abbotsford a couple of years ago and this man walked in. He said, Bob, I said, I won't tell you his name. Call it Sam. He was a Mennonite, so it probably wasn't Sam. but, But anyway, Sam. I said, it's 25 years since we met. Yeah. How's it going? 
My wife, Mary, that really was his name. She's just parking the car. I, I want you to meet. Because he remembered the night that he came storming into my office at Killarney Park and said, I want to leave my wife. I want to get divorced. I said, how come? Don't feel in love anymore. To which I said, what's that got to do with it? But I was speaking the same thing that Jesus is saying. Of course you need emotion, and you need sentiment, and you need feelings, you need chemistry in marriage. Of course, I'm not saying that. But we live in a world in which everything goes on how we now feel, and if it doesn't feel nice, I quit. And Jesus knew that that was human nature of people who followed him, and they couldn't understand what Bonhoeffer says when Jesus bids me come. He bids me come and die. So the second thing is, a person comes to him, verses 59 to 60, and says, Lord, I'll follow you. Like, I'm a really, really cool guy. I'm going to follow you. But I have to go home and bury my father first. Now again, you have to understand the culture. The man wasn't saying, my dad died and he's in the funeral parlor and the funeral's next week. After that, I'll follow you. He wasn't saying that at all. Culturally, he was saying, when my dad dies, I'm going to get the inheritance, and it's better than Canada pension, it's better than RRSPs, it is going to be, I'll be okay, I'll, I'll be secure. And Jesus said, uh-uh, let the dead bury their dead. Come and follow me. Because Jesus knew that you can't follow him based on emotion or based on economic security. Again, it's Bonhoeffer who says, Jesus calls us out of our security into the insecurity of following him, which is the only real security that is. If you missed that, I think it's in the notes somewhere. We have to be very careful, all of us, young and old and in between. I used to think I was in the in-between, but I belong to the old now. We need to be careful that we don't think of adding Christianity to our middle-class lifestyles. Middle-class lifestyle is our God. I am amazed at the cars that some Christians drive. I don't care what car you drive. To me, a car's got four wheels, a steering wheel, a couple of seats, and whatever else, as long as it goes from A to B. I am amazed at why people think that they have to live in houses the size they do. Sorry, I'm not even trying to get at you. My house is ten times as big as, as the hovels and huts in Africa, so like, it, it, I'm not throwing stones. But I am amazed at how much the middle-class lifestyle of around here, or Kelowna, or wherever, is what we assume is our God-given entitlement, and we will fit Jesus into that Remember, it was Jesus who said, a person's life does not consist in the things that she possesses. I'm going to say something that may get you mad enough to come back next week or not to come. It's Labor Day weekend, so you'll have an excuse. You have to go away. I hear so much talk about focus on the family. I have no criticism of that organization. I don't do that kind of thing. But the theme is, and I see it, I see it in Christian evangelicals, middle class evangelicals, their life is poured into their kids. 
Now, how would you deny Ryan and his wife excitement about the baby? How would you deny my wife excitement about our 12 grandchildren? Like, don't misread me, but hear me say this. The focus for a believer's family is not on his family. It's on the kingdom of God. And if we believe Jesus is true, then we hear him say this. Seek first the kingdom of God, and the things that matter will really be given unto you. It is more important that your children become spiritual than they become rich. That they have Christian character than they have big homes, or whatever. And so Jesus said, hang on. You just want your dad to give you the money and then you can follow me. Following me is a very insecure thing. And then the final thing. i got a couple of minutes. The final thing in verse 61 and 62. It says, you know what? Let me just go say goodbye. Again, because of time, I'll give you the bottom line of that. Jesus wasn't stopping somebody from going down the street or picking up the cell phone and go, I've got to go with Jesus, I'll see you later. He knew that what this person was saying was, I have a social life that I have geared to do many things, and I have certain things I do on Tuesday and certain things I do on Wednesday. And you know what? When I get that all straightened out, then I'll think about following you. In other words, Jesus was speaking against the individualism that is so rampant in our culture. Um, He just said, no, that's not how we're going to do it. Your saying goodbye means that you don't know the nature of the kingdom. That's a huge issue in our culture. And the Christian church should offer the alternative to the individualism of the culture. It should offer community in which people really, really care for one another. It should offer not only community, but the word that doesn't even hardly exist in our culture anymore, accountability. Until not long ago, I drove a huge motorcycle with all the bells and whistles. Uh, I almost said power steering, but apart from that, it had everything, including quadraphonic sound. I was a motorbike nut. I don't have a motorbike nut, but the other part hasn't changed now. Um, I gave up the bike recently because I've become old enough to give it up. But about 10 years ago, I came off it and smashed my leg and said, "Mm, maybe it's time for me to quit. Wasn't sure. My wife had the wisdom to not give me an answer. Um, So I went to my home group in whom I had and with whom I had an accountability relationship about anything. It was free. Nobody made me do it. I wasn't bound and shackled. But I understood the nature of Christian community is not only do we have fellowship together, we have accountability with one another. And so I said to the group, what do you think? And I know, the group knows, even my dear wife knows, that if the group had said, it's time to give up your bike, I would have given it up. That's just a simple illustration. They said, no, keep it. And I kept it for 10 years after then. I quit it. But we live in a culture which huge. That life's about me. That life's about what I want and what I do. I better stop. There are some implications. We'll pick them up next week. How do we 
who are called to make a passionate attachment to Jesus, who are ordinary people whom God is going to make something out of. He's going to make a silk purse out of a pig's ear. That's an old phrase. We need to understand that love and that warmth and that openness and that gentleness and that non-legalism that is part of belonging to Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. That context of Revelation 3.20 was like an intimate meal. A couple are sitting down together to have a candlelight supper and they're going to propose. That sort of situation. And Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. And that's the intimacy and the warmth and the freedom and the joy and the liberation and the hope that comes through being a Christian. Along with it. Not in contradiction to it, but like marriage. Along with the honeymoon there comes the rest. That we need to hear Jesus say, get serious, be intentional. I'm going to quote an American poet, if I can find it, because it's a choice for us to make. You know the poem, Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. We can come to church and we can make sure that the pastor preaches the good doctrines. We can come to church meetings and make sure that we get our own way. And we can do this, that, and the other, and we can do lots of church work. A lot of it's fine. But there's another way. And that's to understand this discipleship in terms of walking in a deep relationship with Jesus who calls us to give up our security, our individualism, to give up our very lives, like Bonhoeffer said. Wow, that's tough. And next week, I'm going to show you the five things that Jesus said, what it means to be a disciple. But Robert Frost, in his poem, The Road Not Taken, says all of us are constantly coming to making decisions. I'll read the last verse. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled, and it has made all the difference, shall we pray. Thank you, Father, that in Jesus is that lovely invitation. I came to Jesus as I was, Weary and worn and sad, I found in him my resting place, and he has made me glad. Help us, basing our lives on that response, to be ready, to give up our our security and follow his insecurity that will lead us to the only security. We ask it in his name. Amen.